This is Chloe Wardropper with EdgeFX, a digital magazine produced by graduate students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Center for Culture, History, and Environment, or CHE for short. I recently had a conversation with Nancy Langston about the Mahler National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, contested claims to public lands, and prospects for collaborative conservation. Nancy is a professor of environmental history at Michigan Tech and an invited speaker at Che's upcoming E is for Environment Symposium. When Nancy and I set up an interview time, it was just a mutually convenient date. But since January 2nd, 2016, an armed group protesting federal land ownership has occupied the Mahler Wildlife Refuge. Because Nancy wrote a history of the refuge called Where Land and Water Meet, a Western Landscape Transformed, Nancy has given a number of radio interviews on the Mahler conflict, her book has been quoted in newspaper articles and featured on The Daily Show, and she published an op-ed in the New York Times. I first asked Nancy whether she'd ever expected to be tapped as an expert on such a hot-button current issue. Um, well, first, Chloe, thanks very much for interviewing me. I'm really looking forward to the Chase Symposium. And um, when I, all my work has um, been guided by a hope of interacting with broader publics. I've chosen all three of my projects because they were currently issues that a lot of people had powerful disagreements about. They were issues that were real sites of conflict. And so I've always really wished that my work would um, intersect with broader publics and get lots of interviews and appear on The Daily Show. But this, I didn't expect this amount of um, I didn't expect any of this coming up with Matt here. It was the last place I would have predicted that a group of militant, essentially terrorists, would have showed up. It seems like a bizarre choice. But when you look at the history of public lands, perhaps it's not so surprising. Hmm. Um, so in the introduction to your book, you write that studying the management of riparian zones or places where land and water meet can help to better formulate strategies for effective resource management. Can you speak a little more about why you decided to write that book about Mahler? Yeah, when I was working on my first book, which is also my PhD dissertation on old growth conflicts in the inland west, I spent a lot of time out west in the, in the high deserts of eastern Oregon and eastern Washington and um, as part of that book, I started to hear people talking about riparian areas as being absolutely critical sites for both wildlife in the West and for human cultures in the West. And it's not surprising why, where there's water in a desert, that's where people and lots of wildlife tend to hang out. But in the process of writing that book, I also realized that there were big conceptual um, clashes over how different people envision that boundary between water and land. So I wrote maybe a paragraph in Where Land in, in my first book, Forest Dreams, about how different foresters had envisioned the point of a watershed. And that made me really interested in thinking a bit more about riparian areas. So actually my first year at UW-Madison, I was a visiting assistant professor in what eventually became the Nelson Institute. At the time it was IES. And I just spent the summer on the way out there hanging out in Malheur. A really good friend of mine um, was a great birder, and we used to go there, and I was madly in love with it. And when I was there, in the, right after my dissertation was turned in, actually, 
um, we were sitting on top of Steen's Mountain looking out over the desert and the wetlands, and I just thought, I want to spend more time here. And I thought, well, how can I do that? And I thought, well, write a book about it. What the heck? Great. Um, so let's get to the heart of the current conflict, which is uh, an argument in part over who should control the Mahler National Wildlife Refuge and what it means that that refuge is public land. Uh, owned by the federal government. So Eamon Bundy, one of the occupiers of the refuge, has said that his group is there to, quote, defend the people of Harney County and using the land and the resources, and that it is their goal to, quote, get the logger back to the logging and the rancher back to ranching. And many occupiers have talked about returning the land to rightful owners, by which they primarily imply that it should go to ranchers. Eamon Bundy and many of this militia movement said that the creation of Mount here National Wildlife Refuge was an unconstitutional act because it pushed local ranchers from their lands, thrust the county into poverty, into an economic depression, and that it's his job to return the land to its rightful owners. And there's so many layers of history there. That's one of the most powerful things about this conflict. It's conflicts over different interpretations of history, different stories about the past and the power they have for today. And it's also dramatically conflicts over different ideas of what the environment means to different people. So I think the first big issue there is that um, there are certainly rightful owners of this land, but they're not the ranchers and they're not the militia, they're the Paiute tribe. For anywhere between, some people say 6,000 years, some people say 13,000 years, the Paiute say since time immemorial, these wetlands and riparian areas and high desert had been the home of the Paiute. And they were forced quite brutally off their lands, um, first by Crook, uh, right after the Civil War, by Army General Crook, uh, because settlers and others didn't see them as fully human. Uh, the Army, after the Civil War, believed that the only good use of the environment was as farming, essentially and as this kind of settled, agrarian, Jeffersonian ideal. And the Paiute had adapted for thousands of years to these high desert wetlands by doing something very, very different than settled farming. They had used the wetlands, they had manipulated the wetlands, they certainly did a form of agriculture, but not settled agriculture. And they had adapted quite successfully to those wetlands. But 1872, after a brutal army campaign, they signed a treaty that gave up most of their lands, but that did establish the Malheur Indian Reservation. And that's where the current refuge is now located. So it never left federal ownership, never went into the hands of the state. Instead, it went into the hands of the tribe as part of this treaty. Um, in 1878, however, ranchers such as Peter French and others had ignored the treaty had illegally taken over some of the Indian lands on the reservation. Some members of the tribe participated in the Bannock uprising, a tribal uprising against really intense um, racism. And the uprising was brief. Retaliation, however, was quite brutal and quite swift. The survivors, many people who hadn't fought at all, were forced by federal troops to march 350 miles through the snow to the Yakima Reservation, home of tribes who've long been their enemies, essentially. 1898, the president abolished the reservation, and there are enormous legal arguments over what part of that was legal, what part of that was not legal. But I think it's really important to recognize, as the Paiute tribal 
people right now are saying so effectively. If any group has prior claims to refuge lands, it's not the ranchers, it's not the militants. That would be the Paiute tribe. Mm. One tribal representative said recently, um, quote, it's the same battles that my ancestors had, and now it's just a bunch of different cavalry wearing a bunch of different coats, which I thought was really poignant and um, telling about yeah. how they feel about this conflict. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, yeah, Charlotte Rodrigue, the tribal chairwoman, has been a really powerful and passionate representative or voice for the tribe and all its diversity. And I think their perspective um, is, is finally coming out, and I think it's really important that we pay attention. What I think is also really important to recognize is that the Paiute have not gone and tried to take over the refuge with an armed uprising. Instead, for at least two decades, and probably many more decades, they have worked very closely with refuge staff to develop both protection for their sacred artifacts and also to participate in collaborative conservation plans, which recognize the needs for local community to be involved in refuge management, but also recognize the needs that these refuges are national treasures and can't just be taken over by any one group. Great. Um, so kind of along those lines of hopeful collaborations between tribes and public and other public and private um, entities, uh, in the last chapter of your book, Where Land and Water Meet, you describe what you call pragmatic adaptive management as a potential way forward for the Mahler Basin. Um, so what does that term mean in this context? Well, what I meant by pragmatic adaptive management was management policies that are based in part on the philosophy of American pragmatism, um, you know, which has a long and glorious history in recognizing that no one group has absolute truth and tries to move away from ideology and use an iterative process essentially based on the scientific method and on the recognition of uncertainty and change to bring together diverse voices to represent their positions and negotiate not some way out of the conflict, because there's always going to be conflict, but find a way where one group can't bully their way into power over others. So I would say it's exactly the opposite of what the militia is doing right now. But it's something that has been going on in the Inland West for a while now, um, which is why I find so ironic the militia and indeed the Hammonds arguments that the refuge is an example of government overreach and destroying the ranchers. There was an interesting op-ed piece um, by a rancher in, in the Inland West, not right at Malheur, uh, in last week's Washington Post, essentially saying there's still a lot of government overreach. You know, we're really sort of um, affected badly by these public lands. And I thought that was interesting because that particular rancher has actually participated in these collaborative processes as part of the Harney Basin Desert Partnership. Um, there are all sorts of efforts. In fact, Secretary of Interior uh, Sally Jewell came and celebrated what she called the Oregon Way. They've done such a good job um, at really trying to negotiate and collaborate and create processes that bring these very different groups together and say, essentially, how can we have wonderful habitat for birds, for red band trout, for sage grouse, but how can we also recognize the need for local communities to be able to make a living out here? Right. Yeah, that seems like such a great um, 
concept. Uh, hopefully, it's working. It's working as a refuge, probably better than anywhere I know in mm. the West right now. In 2013, the Malheur Refuge adopted a long-term management plan, the Comprehensive Conservation Plan, that was forged with the participation, the help of the Paiute tribe, with lo- lots of local ranching um, community members, with county commissioners, with some environmental groups, with Portland Audubon. And I think it's an extraordinary example of an excellent comprehensive management plan. And people are really putting in the time and effort, not just to come together to try and find some kind of consensus and way forward, but also to implement the plan. So of all places in the West to choose to make your last stand as the militia movement, this just seems like the wrong place. Well, thank you. Um, I'd like to ask you in closing about your current book project, uh, Sustaining Lake Superior, which is um, about how we learn from the past to manage an ecosystem into the future, from what I understand. Um, You wrote on your website of this project that you hope your work can translate um, between how historians and ecologists differently conceptualize ecosystem change in Lake Superior forests, which are threatened by climate change and invasive species among other things. Um, can you say a little bit more about how you see this project as translating across disciplines and epistemologies? You know, I, I'm intrigued by Lake Superior partly because I fell in love with it many years ago, but also because it's one example among many in North America and across the world where there was extraordinary environmental devastation and there's also been incredible recovery. And I think those stories need to be told better. Bill McKibben did a wonderful job talking about the New England forest in his book, I think 15 years ago, Hope, Human, and Wild. Um, Ellen Stroud, in her recent book about the Eastern forest, has also done a very nice job with it. And it's not so much that I think the declensionist stories that environmental historians tell are wrong. I just think there are other stories that are equally important. And so I started this project partly with you know, a simple question, is there anything we can learn from the recoveries of the past, which are often partial, to help guide us towards a more sustainable future? And also a much more specific question, which is, why have terrestrial species recovered so well when aquatic species have not? Um, So questions about watershed change. Um, But, you know, my my overall goal with this book is yet again to write a place-based work by which I can both engage with some bigger questions about environmental change and environmental conflict, and also get to spend a lot of time hanging out in a place that I love. And as you probably know, I was trained uh, primarily as an ecologist. I did my PhD at University of Washington in ecology and evolution, and then switched right at the end to an independent PhD that brought together geography, ecology, and history. So in some ways in my entire career, I've tried to do this translation because I think the insights are really valuable. Um, And um, endocrinology, the study of hormones, was one of my fields for my PhD. And knowing that language became very useful in my last book about endocrine disruptors, about toxics. So I, I think it's really, really important that we create processes not just by which you know, ranchers and loggers and environmentalists can start to hear each other's language and understand that even though they have very different ideas of what the environment is for, they share a love for place. 
Equally, I think it's also important that ecologists and physicists and computer scientists and humanists and historians and geographers and community members start figuring out some way to recognize their epistemological differences, but also find a way to recognize that they have certain things powerfully in common. Even if they tell very different stories about the past, there's a shared future that they hope to engage with.